Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's um, actually Monday evening, uh, Tuesday evening is December 7th, 2021. I didn't even realize what the date was. It's 80 years from Pearl Harbor. And that moved me just in the spur of the moment to do, to say a few words. I'm going to do a podcast about the, the Pearl, Pearl Harbor and the, and the Jewish angle and use it for a broader purpose as well. So I'm glad Levy, uh, Friedman, Levy, and Lolly agreed to sponsor this. The spur of the moment. In honor of Levy's grandfather, Max Eiselman, who came over with all the Jews 100 years ago, uh, the period I'm going to talk about. And I thank them for their generosity. Uh, as I said, I don't even give much attention to it. It's December 7th, it's 80 years from the Pearl Harbor. Now, I think you know what I'm talking about, when the Japs bombed American Pearl Harbor. <clears throat> and I wrote, Friedman wrote to me, said, why did the Japs do that? <clears throat> And so on and so forth. Didn't they know we had a navy? You know, all kind of you know things like that. And uh, I bet you a lot of people ask that question. And I want to say a few words about that. It's which kind of in a screwball way ties into Hanukkah, <clears throat> or the aftermath of Hanukkah. Now we're in the day after Hanukkah. That <clears throat> has to do with a broad subject, which is should be, should be of importance to anyone who listens to this podcast because it's about sort of the nature of history. It's a famous truism, but a superficial one, from Santiano, that those who forget to listen lessons of history are doomed to repeat it. Which is mashma that if you study history, you can learn from the past how to behave in the future. This is a very common uh, idea out there. It's not exactly true. It is in a certain way, but not in the way that you think. Um... One has, if you study the past, you know the past, it may possibly be of help to you in your conduct in the future, but only if you're very careful and extremely thoughtful on how you analyze what happened in the past. Usually, what happens in history, people are not thoughtful and are rather superficial in their analysis of the past, and they draw false analogies. And it often leads to bad results and sometimes disaster. And that, my friends, is what happened to the Japs when they attacked the United States on December 7, 1941, attack on Pearl Harbor and the American fleet in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And now I'll explain what I mean. Japan, and I think many people know this, we used to learn it in school, was a primitive uh, backwards country with bows and arrows up to like the 1850s or so. <clears throat> Not 100%, they're way behind the Europeans in science and technology. And then the Americans came, remember Admiral Perry and all that? And um, they opened up Japan, as the expression goes. The Japs wanted to be isolated and not have anything to do with other countries, but it wasn't possible. <laughs> Pretty doggone quick, the Japs realized that the Europeans and the Americans have all the modern weapons, and if they don't catch up with them, and modernize pronto, 
Japan will be taking over like the Europeans and the Americans did to all the colonies in Asia and Africa. You understand? Based on why not? They a bunch of natives. They got primitive weapons. We got the modern weapons. We can take them over. That's how the Europeans and the Americans, you know, conquered and ruled almost all the world. By 1900, let's say, for example. <clears throat> and Japan, unlike the other Asian and African countries, you know, rolled up their sleeves. And in a single generation or two, they modernized. They went from bow and arrow to modern weapons. They went from nothing, you know, horse and wagon, to railroads and automobiles and the whole nine yards. And, I mean, they really westernized their society while at the same time hanging on to their old traditions. It's very interesting. <clears throat> now, a lot of people didn't believe it or understand it because the Japs still walk around, a lot of them, with old-fashioned clothes and the geisha girls and all that stuff. But really, they built universities and modern industry and all the stuff that other countries had. People didn't cop that. And because um, you looked there, you looked at the superficial outer stuff. You didn't see stuff going around there. And very interestingly, the Japs said like this, who's got the best Navy? England. We'll send a bunch of Japanese over there to learn how to make a British Navy. We'll copy the British Navy. They got the best Navy. And they say, who has the best army? Germany. <clears throat> Send the guys over to learn how to copy the German army. And so the Japanese army was a model of the German army, which was the best. And the Japanese navy was a model of the British navy, which was the best. I hope I said that right. The German army and the British navy. But people didn't cop that. Now, Japan, the European countries, by and large, didn't get it. Especially Russia. Russia looked at the... Japanese, they said, oh, a bunch of chinks. You know, that's how they talk. Get it? It's, it's, it's a racism. And they, they're they nothing. Meanwhile, the Russians were in the, in, in, in the process of taking over China and Korea and all that stuff. That was their objective. And they were in the middle of the process. And then Japan, from the other side, wanted to take over China and Korea, especially Korea. And so there was a clash of interest between Russia and um, Japan around 1900 or so. Now look how humongous Russia is. And look how rather small Japan is, a bunch of islands. And the Russians, you know, looked down upon the Japanese and said, you know, we can force them to, to let us have our way. And so the two sides were, you know, uh, opposing each other. And the Russians were, uh, you know, horning in as they do, trying to take over Korea. <clears throat> now, neither of these two sides were tzaddikim, but I'm just telling you what happened. As a result, the Japs came to the conclusion they have to fight the Russians. How can a small country like Japan take on a big country like Russia? Well, they, well, they felt they had to. I mean, they weren't sure, but it was, you know, it was a risk. They were very nervous, but they did it. First of all, Russia has certain weaknesses. At that time, all the Russian army and everything was all the way in Europe. To transport them all across Siberia, they only had one railroad. It wasn't so pushy to get... So, no, Russia couldn't fight with the full force. And they were hoping that they would surprise attack them and be able to impose heavy blows on the Russians. That the Russians would not want to continue a war. Because the Japanese knew if the Russians got really, really, really serious and said, even if we lose millions of men, we'll still fight Japan, they would beat Japan. Japan couldn't last for a long war. They could last for a short war. And they pulled it off. So the Japanese, in 1904, what they did was, they said, they said like this, 
will make a sneak attack on the Russians. The Haino will go, and there was a lot of tension between the two sides. But anyway, the Japanese were negotiating constantly with the Russians back and forth, and neither side was happy with the proposal of the other side. And then the Japanese did like this. They delivered a message to Russia, we now declare war. But this is 1904. So that, it's a telegraph, it takes a while, you know, and then you have to absorb it. About 24 hours later, or maybe less, after they declared war in Russia, the Japanese Navy made a surprise attack on the Russian Pearl Harbor, they called Port Arthur. It was a famous seaport, you know, that the Russians were occupying. And they smashed the Russian Navy there from a surprise attack. Now, this is a sneak attack, but technically speaking, yesterday they declared war. You get what I'm saying? It's not like I attacked you without a declaration of war. We declared war, but we were reason Makdim Lemitzvah. Very quickly, I think if I remember correctly, a day later or something like that, they, they, uh, they hit the Russians, who were not ready, caught with their pants down, and the Russian Navy, which is their big naval power, was suddenly sunk. Uh, so this was a disaster for Russia. And then, in addition to that, Russia, under that particular time, was under Tsar Nicholas II. He was a real boob. Russia is gigantic, but it wasn't well organized. He was intensely anti-Semitic. Therefore, their economy was in bad shape. You get it? That's when they had the pogroms and all that stuff. Now, anyway, Nicholas II was a jerk. This Nicholas Alexander was Mamsha jerk. It wasn't like one of these czars that were really tough or like Stalin. He was a jerk. And so the war wasn't fought well. The Russian army wasn't really prepared. They did send a lot of men over. But the Japs had a big army, not as big as the Russians, and they were super well prepared. And they shocked everybody by beating the Russians a bunch of times in battle. <clears throat> in addition to that, the Jap Navy was constantly, you know, studying the British method. And the Russians sent a fleet from the Atlantic to, to go to the Pacific and help fight the Japanese over there. And the Japanese were ready for them. And they fought a perfect naval battle in Tsushima, which is near the bottom of Korea. And they wiped out the Russian fleet. So first they beat them in one place, and then they beat them in others. In other words, the Japanese Navy just made it their business to excel. And since they excelled, they were on the ball more than the other side. And theoretically, Russia can just go build another Navy, another army, and all that kind of stuff. But chances are not going to do it. The reason I say chances are not going to do it is... The Russian government under the Tsar was very unpopular. He would not give in the slightest bit to any democracy or uh, liberalism. And uh, plus he did anti-Semitism. But even the Russian government didn't like him. And so when, in addition to all this bad dictatorial stuff, he starts losing to people like the Japs, the people really lost respect for him, and a revolution broke out in Russia in 1905, which shook the government. At that point, look like everything will collapse. Russia will go down the tubes. The Tsar will be overthrown, which was his worst nightmare. And so, Balkarko Shlobotovoso, since he lost two fleets and a couple of armies, in another time and place he could have raised more armies. Meanwhile, he had riots and revolutions in the streets. So he was compelled by circumstances to give in and sign a peace treaty with the Japs, giving them what they wanted. Um... Uh, this was negotiated by Teddy Roosevelt called the Treaty of Portsmouth because the delegates all went to New Hampshire and America was like the middleman, you know, 
And that's how they ended the Russian-Japanese War. Okay, so what does the doctor do with the Jews? I just told you that Russia was very unpopular in Russia and elsewhere. Certainly was unpopular with the Jews. Now, when Japan went to war, when they made this decision, one of the biggest problems goes like this. Wars are incredibly expensive. It costs a fortune. I mentioned it this morning when I talked about Yosef and the Parsha Vaigash, you know, with his economic policies. Wars cost a fortune. Most countries cannot afford wars. Um, you hear what I just said? Like when England and France went to World War One, they couldn't afford it. They had to borrow a belt of money from America, so much money that they were never able to repay it. Uh, I don't think many people understand this. Wars cost a fortune. How much did George Bush's war in Iraq cost? It's a trillion. <laughs> Where I come from, that's a lot of money. That's a trillion, you see? So the, the, the numbers are crazy. So how's a country like Japan going to have enough money to fight the war with Russia? Even if they beat them or something like that. But just financially, they can't hold out. The answer is, that you helped them. They went to Wall Street, because that's what you did when all the governments need money, you go to the big bankers. They're the ones that have the money. At that time, the big guy on Wall Street, or one of the big guys, was Jacob Schiff, who was the number one Jew in America. Jacob Schiff was a Yekka, born in Frankfurt, and he went to Hirsch's, Sam's Ray Hirsch Day School. Not yeshivas of Hirsch and Broyers. The original school of Sam's Ray Hirsch in Frankfurt, a mine. And uh, not as he came from a firm family, he wasn't so firm when he grew up. He became a big reform Jew. Once in a while, he was Orthodox when he felt like it. But the bottom line is, he was loaded, and he was a financial genius on the Wall Street level. And uh, I remember, he had 50 million bucks. At that time, a dollar was a dollar. So 50 million is like, I don't know what today. And uh, he's a very powerful fellow. You know, he dealt with Rockefeller and Harriman and Morgan and all that kind of business. And he and he's a Yiddish Yid. And he said, I guess, I hate Russia. They're oppressing my people. They just did the Kishina pogrom last year in 1903. The czar is a mom's there and a half. The, the pogroms all the time. It's a killing. It's a rape. All the rest of it. I hate Russia. He said it by favorites in New York Times. I hate Russia. I'm going to help Japan. You see? I'm going to help Japan. Uh, ordinarily, the Japs wouldn't have much of a chance of raising a lot of money in Wall Street. I'll make sure that they do. I'll stand behind them. And he did. And because of that, Japan was able to wage the war. And believe me, they know it. They know it's because of him. And, uh, and beat the Russians. without. What I'm trying to say is like this. Without his help, it wouldn't happen. And the Russian... If there's a, you can get a book, Jacob Schiff. Uh, what's his name? By Naomi Kuhn. You know, uh, a historian, whatever. You read about Jacob Schiff. I'll say he gave us a from. Once in a while, he felt like doing from things. Unfortunately, he thought he knew more about Yiddishkeit than other people. You know, when you think you're rich, you know everything. Daddy didn't know, but he was a good guy. And the Russian minister of finance, who was in the war, gave a famous interview, a speech, where he said, our government will never forgive or forget what that Jew shift did to us. He alone made it possible for Japan to get money in America. He was the most dangerous man we had against us abroad. You hear that? He was the most dangerous man we had against us abroad. And some of the Russian Jews say, don't do it, you make it worse for us over here. And Jacob says, said to them, that's what he said. You guys are suffering You're living under depression of the czar. I'm, I'm taking no junk off of him. Okay? I take nothing off the Russians. And when Teddy Roosevelt 
uh, and what the New York Times said, what is your policy towards Russia in this war? He said in the New York Times, to give them as hard a knocks as Russia as I can, to accept no promises in return for aid when this is asked, and to do nothing for Russia until she actually gives civil rights to her Jewish subjects. So he said to Farish, I'm going against Russia, I'm using all my financial might, I have a lot of pull, and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, contacts out there in the high finance around the world, which he did, and I'm going to do whatever I can to help Japan. And the Russians knew it. And when the Russian delegation came to sign the peace treaty in America, Teddy Rizzo put them together in the room with Jacob Schiff, and Tom Vita, who's a famous person in Russia, Sergei Vito, who was the prime minister under Nicholas II, wrote his memoirs, and he said, he, he had a conversation with Schiff, he said, and he wrote in his memoirs, he said, I never met such a Jewish Schiff, proud, dignified, conscious of his power. He declared to me solemnly that so long as the Tsar's government would continue its anti-Jewish policy, he would exert every effort to make it impossible for Russia to get a kopeck in the United States. Schiff banged the table with his fist and declared that government, which indulges in massacres and in human persecution on religious grounds, will not be trusted. Now, the Japs knew this, and they considered Schiff like a god. So when they, by them, they believe in the protocols of Zion, because he proved it. You see, the Jews of the world, as the Japanese saw it, gathered against Russia, because Russia went against the Jews, so the international Jewish conspiracy was on the side of Japan. And that's the reason Japan was able to win the war. You get it? It was able to win the war. This created the situation, this screwball set of circumstances, that a revolution broke out in Russia, and the Russian government at that particular time was particularly inept, and the Japanese were able to surprise attack them, and the Jap Navy was ready for them and wiped out the other fleet at the Battle of Tsushima, and there's other things also. I don't have to go all the details of the Russian-Japanese war. A whole bunch of things had to happen in good coincidence for Japan to be able to win the war. And with everything I just said, listen closely, it was a close call because after a year or so, or a year and a half, the Japs were out of money and out of, you know, with everything, and at the end of their rope, they used up all their soldiers, they used up everything. They were in bad shape also. Notice they were winning. But they realized they can't go in much weiter. It's very important what I'm telling you now. That even though the Japanese beat the Russians, they realize they can't keep this up much longer. And if the war goes on and on and on, Japan will collapse. The emperor's government knew that. Which is why they secretly appealed to Teddy Roosevelt, the president of the United States. They said, you know, we're asking you, do us a favor and... Make be a sponsor of peace treaty, you know what I mean? They'll be the mediator. So when Teddy Roosevelt said, I will mediate the Russian-Japanese war, he already had assurances from both sides that they wanted him to do so, and each side, for its own purpose, wanted the war come to an end. The Russians wanted the war to come in because they were losing, and they had a revolution, and the Tsar's government sounded like this. Oops. Sorry about that. Um. Anyway, so both sides had their reasons, you know, the Russians said, we got we to gotta, we gotta end the war so we can use the army to put down the revolution. And they did put down the revolution. So it's all very complicated. Okay? And when the war was over, actually, <laughs> everybody hated America. That's always what you, you do somebody a favor because Teddy Roosevelt negotiated sort of like, uh, you know, Yachloko, 
uh, that, you know, Japan got half what they wanted, Russia got half what they wanted. And so each side got angry at America because America didn't get them all what they wanted. It's, it's strange in that way, but that's what, that's the separate moves. Anyhow, um, that's how Teddy Roosevelt got the Nobel Prize, by the way, for peace. Um, when the war was over, they brought Schiff over to Japan. They gave him a, a title and they gave him the covered malachim and all that kind of stuff because he helped Japan amazingly. Okay? Uh, now, listen closely. I just finished the history part. Now, I want you to pay close attention to what I want to tell you. There's history and then there's memory. Memory is how you remember the history. And as I said before, knowing the past is not so pushing. Because when you know the past in just a very broad way, in what I will call a mythical fashion, in which certain elements of the past present themselves as the dominant features in your memory, and other features don't have such prominence, so you don't pay attention to the actual details what happened in the past, then you have a warped sense of the past, and if you use that memory to serve as your guide for the future, saying, listen, I'm studying history, didn't know what, what goes right during the future, you're fooling yourself because you're not studying history. History, you have to know the details. You have to see all the angles. You have to understand the context. You can't simply shoot your mouth off, um, you know, because you know a little bit here, a little bit here. I read a book or two now, I know about the Civil War, you know, or the Revolutionary War. Can't do like that. You have to really be mine in the sug, as they say. Or don't have an opinion, you know. Well, that's not what happened. In the mind of Japan, we beat the biggest country in the world, which was true. And we gained amazing victories over them, which was absolutely true. And our Navy was superior to the Russians and sank the whole damn Russian Navy, which was true. In the Battle of Tsushima, they sank the whole Russian fleet. That is true. And in other words, and our surprise attack worked. And that is true. So, And we beat the largest country in the world. That is true. So you, know, you, you see where I'm going? So once this got into people's mind in Japan, it gave them a certain overconfidence and cockiness. We did it once, we can do it again. So in the 1930s, when Japan had clashes with America under the Roosevelt administration, because the United States did not agree with Japan's invasion of China, I'm, I don't want to get too technical with you, and diplomatic relations between the U.S. and, Canada, and, and Japan really went bad, okay, went bad, um, then some Japanese started to say like this, the, the Americans are pushing us around like Russia used to push us around. The same way we... Now, it's true, America's bigger than us. They knew that. And America's more powerful than us. So what? We did it before. With the right planning and the nice sneak attack and all the other things, see? Just like we beat the biggest country in the world because we were ready for them and they couldn't hold out for a long war, we can do it again to America. Now, you know, there was a gigantic mistake. That's just a very mythical and memory-based understanding of what happened. The Japanese had forgotten that they themselves were almost gone, and they were begging America to come, Teddy Roosevelt to come and, and, and mediate the end of the war. They forgot that they exhausted themselves very quickly, and the fact that they beat Russia was just lucky. The Russia had a revolution, and all kind of other things, and the Tsar was unpopular, and so forth and so on, and, and the Russians couldn't get their, their soldiers there in time because they only had one railroad through Siberia. They forgot a whole bunch of little factors which actually have crucial importance 
because they point to the tremendous difference between Russia on the one hand in 1904 and the U.S. on another hand in 1941. It's Enodoma. But uh, the Japanese didn't want to see it that way. But let's put it this way. The smart Japanese saw it that way. The dumb ones didn't. The guy who was the commander, today's uh, Pearl Harbor, is very famous. The guy who was the commander of the Japanese fleet, who's the one who planned the Pearl Harbor attack, was Admiral Yamamoto. He was a smart cookie. In fact, the Japs just made a movie about him. Uh, he was a smart cookie. And he's a Japanese patriot. And he had been in the United States. And he was a veteran. He lost a finger in, in the Russian-Japanese War in 1904. He was at that big naval battle. And he learned the lessons of history, like I'm saying to you. And he kept telling everybody, he says, don't be Madama Milsa Milsa. Don't say that America is another example of Russia. It's very different. You can't say, oh, we learned from the past that we beat, we beat a great nation before, we can beat it again. It's Anodoma. America is gigantic and has an industrial capacity bigger than anybody else in the world put together. You can't compare Russia, which had a backward economy, with America, which had the most advanced economy. The American people are you know, committed to their country, not like the Russians who hated the government. There's a million examples of differences between Russia on the one hand in the time of the Tsar and America on the other hand in the time of Franklin Roosevelt. That's when it was. But the machers who wanted the war, the generals and the others, they didn't listen. You see? They said, no, no, you are not the one who's deriving the right lesson of history. We are. And as it came Machlokis and the Japanese government, what is the proper lesson to, 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 to learn from the Russian-Japanese war? <coughs> Obviously, since the Japanese attacked America, you know that the dumbbells won. You get what I'm saying? The ones who said, the Russian-Japanese war came to the Connors of World War II. The same way we beat Japan, that we, the Japanese, beat the Russians, even though they were a million times bigger than us, we could do the same thing to America. Admiral Yamamoto said like this, you're making a big mistake. You are making a big mistake. They said, no, no, no. Just like the Russian people were decadent and made a revolution when things went bad, the American people are pleasure-loving, they're decadent, they're into movies, good time, they don't have the stomach for war. They're not like the Japanese race with this militarism. The Americans are very soft and all this kind of stuff. And they don't have the stomach for a long war. So if we do a, do a Port Arthur on them, if we surprise attack them and wipe out their navy at one blow, and we give them a couple of other good kicks, we defeat the the garrison here and wipe out the Americans in, in the Philippines and in Guam and these other places, um, the Americans will say, it'll be the same thing. Theoretically, the Americans could raise a million zillion army and theoretically, they could create new fleets and all that, but they won't. Because they say it's not Kadai, and let's, you know, like we say today, let's just uh, uh, liquidate a bad deal, and we'll sign a peace treaty with Japan. Now, it was kind of America's fault. The Roosevelt administration was angry that Japan had signed a treaty of friendship with Hitler, and uh, the Japanese had invaded Indochina, China plus Indochina. And so what Roosevelt did was to say, we're not going to sell you any oil. Well, Japan needs oil. How are you going to run the country? There's no oil. Basically, he's saying, I'm going to close you. I'm going to shut your country down. I'm going to like starve you of oil. 
What would happen if we in America had no gas, you know? There were people in America who said, don't do that. If you did it, you're like forcing the Japanese against a corner. You're forcing them, you're forcing them for, for, for oil. Uh, you know, you're forcing them to war. Because they have no choice. This is a long schmooze, and I'm giving you the short version. FDR did not listen to those guys, okay? Instead, he said, the heck with the Japs. He himself was kind of contemptuous of them. Um, that was racism. Get it? Racism is just is not true. So he said, like I said before, the Japanese are a bunch of chinks. The planes are stupid. Their tanks are bad. All the rest of it. Actually, the Japanese planes were better than the American planes. And the Japanese guns are better than the American guns. You see, that's, that's the trouble with racism. Anyway, and their ships were better than the American ships in many cases. And so the bottom line is that uh, we weren't ready for it. And um, of course, they, you know, when the Japanese said, are you going to start selling us the oil again so we can live as a country or not? And Roosevelt said, no. Then the Japanese said, I guess, all right, well, the, 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 okay, we'll do to them what we did to the Russians. We'll knock out their fleet. That's called Pearl Harbor attack. We'll wipe out the fleet. They won't have any Navy. We'll have the Navy. They can't get us because we won't have a Navy. And we can attack them. Now, Japan wasn't stupid enough to think that they can invade the United States and conquer the country. We had much bigger population than them and, you know, all that stuff. That powerful they weren't. And they didn't plan to. You understand? They didn't even plan to. But it's enough for them if they wipe out the American Navy and then control the Pacific and the U.S. won't have the energy or the will to take millions of losses and this and that, and they'll just write it off. You see? Now, this was a gigantic misjudgment of the American mentality, as we know. Plus, as I said before, it's never the same. You say, I'm learning the lessons of history. It's never the same situation. You have to study the past, as I said, for Bimayan and the Sugyo, and then take due account for the differences. Um, by the time of 1941, the main thing was the aircraft carriers. The Japanese thought that the aircraft carriers are in Pearl Harbor. It turns out that they weren't. So they sank the ships that were there, but they missed the aircraft carriers. So the Iker was Chaser. So the whole point of Pearl Harbor was useless. Plus, in addition, so it wasn't the same thing like when they attacked in Port Arthur, and they did indeed wipe out the Russian fleet. Here, they did not wipe out the American fleet. They did sink a bunch of battleships and stuff like that. That is true. But the Iker ships, the most important ones by far, were the aircraft carriers. America had four. Japan had like ten and uh, at that time. And they didn't get them. You understand? This is a, a, anybody knows even a little bit about Pearl Harbor knows this part. Plus, it's also true that the Japanese did a lousy job to Haino. They came and they blew up a bunch of ships. But the main danger of Pearl Harbor was as a base. They went in for two airstrikes. They should have gone for another one or two and blow up all the gasoline dumps, which had a zillion gallons of gasoline to fight the war, and they didn't do that. If America would have no gas there, I mean, eventually it would have, it would have made Pearl Harbor useless for a long, long time. And America had also a base, a dry docks and things like that, which were of extreme importance for repairing and building up your Navy and stuff like that, which, by the way, was built by a Jewish admiral, Admiral Bloch, um, of the American Navy. He was the one, Claude Bloch, who put together Pearl Harbor as a, as a uh, what should I say, as a supply base and all this kind of stuff. 
Japs could have blown up the whole base, and they didn't do that. They just took the ships out. So it just took a week or two to, to you know, to, to get the bad ships out of the way. The rest of the harbor was totally intact. You know, really, within seven days, Pearl Harbor was ready again as a total naval base. You get it? So even the attack was, was done wrong. <clears throat> and finally, the temperament they totally got wrong. Russia in 1905, everybody hated the government, and the Tsar was a boob. You understand? There was such a period in Russia. If it would have been another time in Russia, it wouldn't have been like that. The United States under Roosevelt, Roosevelt was probably the strongest president we ever had. And he gave that famous speech. You can listen to it. You know, yesterday, a date that will live in infamy, U.S. was attacked by Japan, and we are going to go after them all the way. He didn't, in fact, the Japanese never imagined the United States did something in Japan nobody ever does. They said, we're going to fight this war to unconditional surrender. It's never like that. It's never like that. Tell me a war in history in which it was unconditional surrender. There's always conditional surrender, meaning you beat me, you're not going to wipe me out. So what do I have to do? I have to give up some land. I have to get some money. I have to do this after that. And then the war's over. You understand? Go throughout history. When there's a war, it's what you call conditional surrender. Like Japan and Russia in 1904. You know, the, the Japanese won. And so the Russians had to give up Port Arthur and let the Japanese be in Korea and an island or two, whatever. And then life goes on. It wasn't that, you know, you want the total surrender of the country. We occupy you and you lose your, your complete identity. When they sneak attack Pearl Harbor, everybody's so angry. And Roosevelt channeled that anger. And he said, never will we forget the character of this. It's all against us. And we're going to do our best to make sure that they can never do this again to us. Which another way of saying like this, we are going to wipe out Japan. We're going to finish these guys off. You understand? So even Admiral Yamamoto, when he heard the speech, he said like this, we have awakened a sleeping giant and filled him with a terrible resolve, meaning a tremendous resolution. We made a big mistake. So even though the Japanese were able for about a year, a half a year, to beat the Americans after Pearl Harbor. And, uh, you know, we the U.S. made a lot of mistakes. And there was a lot of incompetence. They, they did. But that's what happened until they got their act together, and then they didn't. <laughs> you understand? And the war against Japan was a very bloody business. So from Pearl Harbor, it was a four years. You know, from December 41 till, till September of 45, almost four years, you know. And there's a lot of death and, and, and uh, what do you call it, uh, cruelty. And the Japanese were sick dogs. They were cannibals. I have to give a speech on uh, this Mosey Shab as part of my uh, current lecture series. I'm up to George Bush Sr. in Israel uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. George Bush Sr. and the first President Bush. And he was a pilot for the Navy in World War II. And he was shot down by the Japs bombing them and he barely escaped you know he got his plane and jumped out into the water off the island he was bombing and the Japs went after him with boats and uh, a submarine you could make a movie out of this an American submarine just surfaced all of a sudden and pulled him on there and got out of there the other guys near him didn't get so lucky they were eaten by the Japs <laughs> you know what I just said they were eaten <laughs> cannibalism something there was a rough business of four years <clears throat> And the Japanese mis totally miscalculated. So you can't say we learned the lessons of history. You learn the lessons of history if you 
as they say, of ayin, you look at every detail and then you apply it with the necessary modifications to the new situation. The Japanese attack on World War One, World War Two, is a perfect example, the best possible example of the lack of that, of the superficial nature of saying, "Oh, you study the past to know what they do in the future." Ninety-nine percent of the time, people study the past do not know what to do in the future because they're Madame and Milso and Milso and not in the right way. You understand? So it's it, it just, it's, it's a fascinating business. Like you say, you study Hanukkah, know what to do in the future. Most of you don't know what really happened on Hanukkah. I did a podcast the other day, I'm going to rush a prokem even, that two-hour business. There's a lot more to it than that. It's not just a two-hour business, even though that's longer than most people can take. It's a complicated business, but the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and... Let me tell you something. America got their unconditional surrender out of that. It's very funny. The war went on until 1945. By 1945, we were at the door of Japan. They were not surrendering. They said like this. We're going to fight like crazy every inch. The Americans lose a million men uh, trying to get here into this country. And they'll lose so many men, the people in America will say, all right, let's sign a, a conditional surrender. No, let, let, let's sign a treaty, that, you know, not like we won the Russian-Japanese war, but at least Japan, you know, will, will keep its independence, won't be occupied, and things like that. And the U.S. was determined to do so. Well, guess what? Nobody calculated that they would make an A-bomb. That's how the Japanese surrendered. No, I'm wrong. The A-bomb didn't make them surrender. So they were so tough, the Japs. They said, even if they nuke us, we'll continue to fight and kill so many Americans, the Americans will have to give in and just agree to some kind of a peace treaty that won't be a total surrender on our part. Isn't that amazing? It's only when the Soviets invaded that the Japanese caved. So, you know, it's so the Russians, Stalin in 1945 was able to get back what the Russians lost in 1904 in Japan. Port Arthur, Sakhalin Island, North Korea. It was like a reversal of the Russian-Japanese war. So the Pearl Harbor attack is just such an interesting example of a misguided reading of the past and its misapplication um, in the future. Uh, that's also true in Jewish history. Um, the Jewish angle of this, of course, is, as you and I know, the Japanese were not anti-Semitic during the Second World War. That's how the Miri Yeshiva and all these other guys were able to hold down in Shanghai, even though it was occupied by the Japanese. I didn't say they loved the Jews. <clears throat> that's an extremely complicated story. I spoke about it a little bit in Rochester, actually, um, the other day, but uh, the Japanese were not against Jews. As a matter of fact, Adrabo, from the story of Jacob Schiff, you see, the international Jewish conspiracy that runs the world shall be on Japan's side. You see, what do we need to do to win the favor of the Jews so they influence America not to fight Japan? But that's how the Japanese thought. Okay? I'll tell you a story, and then I'll let it go. In 1938, so the Jews were looking for where to run away. Uh, Hitler was taken over Europe at that time. The war hadn't started yet. No country wants to let the Jews go there. The British wouldn't let them into Palestine. The Americans wouldn't let them to America. The other countries were very anti-Semitic. What are the six million Jews of Europe, or two million, three million, whatever it is, where could they even run to if somebody would take them in? Well, guess who said they would take them in? Japan. That time, Japan ruled Manchuria, which was part of China. That was the part of of, of, of China that Japan's semi-annexed. It's a gigantic province. I said, move the Jews over here. We'll, we'll, we'll let them in. Uh, could they have saved a million Jews or something like that? They could have, really. They could have. Uh, what's his name? The Frum 
were interested in this. Shragafari uh, Mendelovich sent a guy to the Japanese in, in Manchuria, from guy, I forget his name, to, ch- to, to the guy from Tabadas. Uh, it's, it's an unbelievable story to check out what's the situation in Manchuria. And the Japanese guy said, if the German Jews, the Austrian Jews, the Czech Jews want to come here, gives them to hate. The main line American Jewish organizations, Rabbi Stephen Weiss and the others, said, no, we don't want to cooperate with the Japanese fascists, and the Japanese are so torturing the Chinese, which was true. They were torturing the Chinese, that we don't want to have anything to do with them. Well, I get it. Meanwhile, all those Jews got killed. So it's very interesting, you know, how all this plays into the Jewish angle. There's more to it even than that, but I can't go into it um, at the present time. So, uh, I, since today's December 7th, these are what you call philosophical musings into the historical past, and uh, I leave that for your consideration. I want to thank, once again, uh, Lolly and Levy, Friedman, for sponsoring this, and I wish you all good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.